Lord, it's hard to say it any better. We love you. We love you for who you are and for what you've done for us, as well as for what you've promised. And our desire, Lord, is to yield our lives, first and foremost, because you are God Almighty. But we also want to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice to you because of what you have done for us. You have liberated us. You've liberated us, Lord, from what we commonly call the law of sin and death, but in practical language today, that means the fact that you've liberated us from the things that have enslaved us in the past. And Lord, we also want to lay our lives down to you for you in gratitude as a sacrifice of praise, in gratitude for what you've promised, for what our future holds. You are truly the Lamb of God, a wonderful and merciful Savior. And we thank you, Lord, for your generosity toward us. In Jesus' name. You may be seated, Dan. I was hoping I was going to call you back and ask you to sing Wonderful, Merciful Savior again. Could you do that for us? You just disappeared, though. It's amazing how that happens when our eyes are closed. You know, um, the reason I'd like to do that song again is because it really points up um, kind of at least that first verse in the chorus of, of where we're headed tonight in the scripture. And um, so lead us again, at least that first verse and the, the chorus. I think we lost the guitar here. No, it's there. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer, You are the one that 
Amen. That is a fitting prayer for us tonight. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Hebrews, end of chapter 10. I'm launching out tonight on a, on a uh, really huge quest to talk about that very big subject, five letters, faith. <laughs> um, it's huge because it, it, it encompasses every area of our life. And, and the writer of Hebrews provides for us um, a window into understanding faith that, that is unlike any other place in Scripture. He describes faith for us here in chapter 11. And, uh, chapter 11, we know, is, uh, we often affectionately call it the Hall of Faith. Um, because it's a, a, a litany of people who the Lord describes here as those who walked in faith. And he provides a, a unique definition there in verse 1 of chapter 11. But I'd like for us to go back to verse 26 of chapter 10. And the reason for that is um, up to this point, the writer of Hebrews has been laying out this this. Um, this case, if you will, for the fact that God has provided precisely what all of humanity has needed in Christ Jesus. Uh, what our hearts always hunger for, that's salvation. And who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? That's what's uncovered for us here uh, in, the, in the book of Hebrews and and it comes to this place of, of uh, kind of culmination, if you will. This is, this is the pinnacle of his argument. And his argument ends with unparalleled encouragement for us as believers. So uh, beginning with chapter 10, verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of, of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, the picture here is this. Um, he has given the, uh, laid it out here that Jesus Christ is indeed that, uh, the revelation of the knowledge of the truth. And the, the revelation is that salvation is found in him and him alone. Redemption is found in the shedding of the Holy One of God's blood for, on our behalf. That's the knowledge of the truth. And this, the word sinning here, we see it in, in uh, this uh, present tense. And it is, it is uh, really, if we go on continuing in sin, if we continue in sin willfully after knowing the fact that God has provided a way of salvation for us in Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That doesn't mean that, that uh, uh, Jesus' sacrifice is no longer good. It simply means that we've rejected that. That's what, the, that's what that means there. But if it's, uh, verse 27, but if a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries, that's the judgment of God for those who, those who reject the, the revelation, the knowledge of the truth in Jesus. Anyone who has set aside 
or despises the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's, that's written in the law. However, how, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has, was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? This judgment that God provides for, for those who are, uh, walk counter to the law is severe, it is eternal, it is surely the judgment that we all, we all fear apart from Christ. But the writer here says that even greater is the sin of those who reject and count as as count as unclean the very blood that saves them. In other words, they, they despise the truth of the sacrifice of Christ himself on our behalf. And what severe punishment is theirs? It is indeed the wrath of God. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. Who is that? It's God, right? Amen. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a certain thing. God has said it. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. Terrifying things to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, um, as believers, we often speak of the fact that there's no place we'd rather be than in the hand of God. It's an awesome truth that the, that the very hand of judgment is also the one that dispenses grace. Think about that for the minute. God is able and well, able is enough. He is able. He is fully capable of dispensing judgment, eternal even damnation for those who reject salvation in Christ. But he is also fully capable of dis extending absolute, unqualified grace for those who receive the gospel. That's God Almighty. That's his grace on one hand and his judgment on the other. And together, they belong to God and God alone. Um, it's interesting. Well, no, I, I'll save that for later. Uh, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32. But remember, remember, make it a habit Make it, a, make it something that you rehearse in your mind. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflicts of sufferings. After you've been enlightened, that word enlightened there refers back to verse 26 that speaks of having received the knowledge of the truth. The truth that Christ is indeed the full payment of, for salvation for all who call upon him. 
you endured great conflicts of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproach and tribulations, and partly by becoming, uh, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizures of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. That reward is something that God gives by his grace, not something that we earn. And it's interesting that he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. You've been through all of this. You even suffered for your faith. Don't throw it away. Don't throw your confidence in God away. And I have to ask the question, do we come up against uh, fear in our lives? So much so that we wonder whether God is really able and willing to still save? I have to ask that question very pragmatically. In view of the, the events that are happening in our own country, not to mention around the world. The things that are happening are, are, are vicious and vile and are completely counter to what we understand the grace of God to be about. Am I speaking truth? Do you find yourself um, scratching your head over this at all? All the time. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the dilemma that we face as believers. We see this activity going on and we ask God, if you're sovereign, why don't you intervene? And what the writer of Hebrews here is saying, if you are asking those questions, don't be quick to throw away your confidence in the fact that God is indeed sovereign. And that what has been in place from the very beginning is this plan of salvation, this plan of redemption to buy back those who deserve judgment and give them absolute salvation. Don't be quick to throw that confidence away, even in view of your suffering. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Mm, that's a curious verse, isn't it? For you have need of endurance. What do we, what do we associate the word endurance with? Sports, okay, good. What else? Running the race, good. Anything else? Strength? Is that what I heard? Strength? Okay. You know what all of those have in common? Pain. Pain. Yeah. For you have need of endurance. I think sometimes we associate the idea of faith in God 
as being that which delivers blessing to our lives. And that is not a, a wrong picture. But I have to tell you that it's extremely limited in its scope of understanding. What we're going to discover in this next chapter is that faith is related to endurance much more intimately than it is with the outpouring and reception of blessing. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, don't misread this verse. The so that has to do with the eventuality that is certain. It's not there to describe the product of your endurance is the promise, the reception of the promise. It's not your endurance. It's not the, the, uh, the success of having endured that guarantees the promise. The promise is there, period. But the bottom line is, if you don't endure, you won't get to the end to receive it. Does that make sense? It's, it, it is something that is, the promise is related and it's connected to the character of God, not to our performance. That's a huge thing for us to grab a hold of as believers. So often we associate the idea of blessing being poured out, of living in faith as an expression of our, our um, being able to receive God's goodness, our capability of receiving God's goodness, having earned it somehow. The earning thing has to go out the window because it's not about that. It's about the fact that God has already he promised, and he will deliver on his promise, period. And it's based on his character, not on our activity. Verse 37. For yet, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Does that leave wide open the door, the possibility that he's going to shrink back? Who is his righteous one? This is a text from Habakkuk. Habakkuk uh, chapter 2. And the righteous one that he's spoken there is the Messiah. And, this, the, the, and if he shrinks back is not a statement of possibility. It's just a statement of the fact that he will not. And his soul, God, the soul, the, the, the Lord's soul, he, he, uh, he anthropomorphizes, anthropomorphizes his himself. That's a huge two-syllable, six-syllable word right there. 26-syllable word, 26-cent-syllable word. Anyway, that he... he he gives human characteristic to himself there and says his soul will have no pleasure in him if he shrinks back, if the Messiah shrinks back. But there is assurance that the Messiah will not shrink back. He will not disappoint the Father. But we are not of those who shrink back 
to destruction, but those who have faith to the persevering of the soul, the preserving of the soul. The bottom line here is that faith requires, one, one intricate piece of faith, let me say it that way, is patience and perseverance. It is not simply um, the, 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 the waiting on, on the outpouring of great blessing in our lives. It is the persevering through that God reveals God is able to work in us that gift of faith. I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that, that, that um, for many of us, we, we operate day to day in what we would probably recognize as the mundane. And yet we hold up individuals and experiences as mountaintops in our lives that we, are, we should be thinking that we should be ascending to these all the time and aspiring always to be at the mountaintop. But the reality is, is that it takes faith to live in the mundane day to day, day to day, day to day. We find those mountaintop experiences as perhaps... Um, Great revelation, but the truth is when God, is, God is, is present in such a way, tell me this, does it take a lot of faith to experience what he wants to pour out? He's pouring it out, period, right? And the faith is actually required when it, we don't see it being poured out. The continual believing in the mundane instead of mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. And God is a rewarder of those who walk in faith. So what does that say? The more normal day-to-day mundane things of life are where God meets us in faith. And we meet Him in faith. Now, The Glorious Hall of Faith, chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the classic biblical definition of faith. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. Hugo de Saint Victor said, By faith we are sure of eternal things. By hope we are confident we will have them. He separates these two things, faith and hope. Very often in our vernacular, we put them together. And I, it's an, I think it's an understandable thing that we do so. We see them mentioned together here. And so we make that connection. But they are really different things. Faith is, faith is, is being sure that what God promises is there. And hope is the confidence that we will experience them. We will experience the fullness of his truth. The fact that it's there is one thing. The fact that we will experience it is, is a separate thing. Now, we might, be, we might be splitting hairs there, 
I don't know, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting recognition to understand that faith and hope, yeah, they, they, are, they are perhaps brother and sister. They are, they are uh, the right and the left hand shaking, but they are separate things. So when we are hopeless, are we faithless? I think in light of that reality, in light of what we just talked about, we can be, quote unquote, hopeless, but not faithless. We can be, we can be faithless and still hopeful, perhaps. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. But we can certainly be hopeless, but still have faith. Now, recognizing that hope is also, it is that right hand shaking that left hand. It is that brother-sister relationship of those, uh, they, they go hand in hand. But if you find yourself in that hopeless place, don't assume that your faith has failed. Let me say that again. If you find yourself in that hopeless place, don't assume that your faith has failed. Your faith is much deeper than the experience of hope itself. Your faith is based upon the character of God. Your hope, your hope is based upon His promises. Now, what we're going to find out in chapter 11 is that these people who we hold up as heroes of faith did not see the promise of God revealed to them in their lifetime. That's huge. That's huge. That does not mean that they, their faith was worthless because they did not see the promise fulfilled. Rather, it meant that their faith was even greater because they continued to believe in spite of that fact. Faith is the assurance. The word assurance uh, can also be translated substance. It's the substance of things that are hoped for. The conviction of things not seen or the evidence of things not seen. For by it, men of old gained approval. Gained approval means simply gained a good report. They had a good testimony. That's, uh, their, their, they, were, uh, they received, well, I, I don't know if they, it's not right to say they received, but they, they, um, they were looked upon with, with uh, the confidence that they were people of faith. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Hmm. Interesting that this was written in the first century. Read the specifics of that for a minute. By faith we understand that the worlds, multiple, were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Let's turn that around, just make it a little clearer. 
things that are seen are made out of things that are invisible. Right? This is the first century writing this. The first century writer. What do we know today just simply about um, uh, the composition of matter? What's the most elemental structure? An atom, right? Can you see an atom? No. What comes after the atom? Come on, you science whizzes. A molecule, yeah. A molecule. So can you see a molecule? No. And yet everything, ev all matter is made up of those things that are unseen. That's amazing to me that even here, and he says, by faith we understand. Romans 1.20 gives expression to the fact that, that all of those who uh, walk the face of the earth are, are made aware, spiritually discerning, the fact that God is God and he has uh, uh, power over all things. Verse 20 of uh, Romans, uh, Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clear, clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Consider those who want to say that there is no God. The, Paul, the Apostle Paul calls them out right then and there and says, how do you explain this? How do you explain God's creation? You cannot apart from the miraculous work of God himself. Something I mean, it's written, it's written in the laws of quote unquote nature that they have penned themselves or that they hold to. I think they were penned by believers actually. But the the uh, the they 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 hold to this idea that something came from nothing. And I think we can all be certain to say that nothing comes from nothing right? Nothing comes from nothing. So how did these things happen? How did, how did these things come to be? Well, they came by the word of God. This is a, a reach back to Genesis chapter 1. God spoke and the world came into being. The universe came into being. He said, light be. He said, light be, and it was. Now, the word here, uh, word of God, is not logos, it's rhema. And there is a difference in that it is specifically speaking of the spoken word of God. The, 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 uh, the word logos has more to do with the being of God. And we see that in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God has to do with the being of God. Um, this word has to do with the fact that God spoke. Let's go on. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith. 
through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts that his, uh, or his sacrifices. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. That's a reference to the, the, fact, the, the um, story there in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, where the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. And it speaks of, uh, it still speaks even though he is dead. And that, it is that faith in what? I often, I often feel like, you know, Cain kind of, Cain kind of got the raw end of the deal, didn't he? Because um, uh, Abel, Abel gave this sacrifice, this animal sacrifice, but, but Cain brought, the uh, um, uh, uh, what could be a worthy sacrifice, right? It was the first fruits of his of his labors. Why was God displeased with that? It's because of this. Even there, God is at work from the very beginning, establishing this truth: that God will redeem a life with a life. God will redeem a life, our life, with his life. God will wash, he will, he will take the blood of the slain Lamb of God and wash it with us and give us that very life. He's establishing it right there in Genesis chapter 3. And Abel, is, is, he, he understands that. And gives that sacrifice. Um, by faith, verse 5, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God took him up. For it, he obtained the witness that before his, his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Genesis chapter 5. We see that story. And Enoch is, there's a very brief mention of Enoch there and one of the unique things about that mention is that it says very clearly that he walked with God he walked with God there's only several verses uh, 21 through 24 of of chapter 5 and in verse 24 it says that he was no more he for God took him away so we know that he, that's a, a reference to the fact that he did, not see, he did not see death as a human here on earth. Rather, he was taken to heaven by God. Uh, I think we could say that that's the first reference to the rapture, if you will, in that, in that statement there. He was, he was taken up because he was pleasing to God. And that whole... Thing has to do with his faith. And without faith, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. That, that, we pull that text out very often and isolate that, but it's really related to verse 5, the story of Enoch. For he obtained the witness of good report, of good reputation, that before his being taken up, to be pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Must believe that he is. That's that first step of faith, to recognize that God is who he says he is, period. That's that first act of faith. And it is impossible It is impossible to please God without such faith because we must believe that he is before we can please him. If we don't believe he is, guess what? The converse of that is we don't please him. By faith, Noah, verse 7, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Story of Genesis uh, chapter 6 through 9. If you don't get what's happening here right yet, um, the writer of Hebrews is taking us through a chronological uh, uh, picture of the Old Testament, heroes of the faith. He became an heir of righteousness. In other words, what does an heir do? An heir do. He inherits. That's what makes him an, an, an heir. So he inherits righteousness. And whose righteousness does he inherit? His own. Because he was righteousness, un, righteous enough to be considered pleasing to God because of his faith? Shaking your head, Bob. No, whose inheritance does he receive? He inherits the righteousness of God, doesn't he? Yeah. By faith, Abraham, verse 8, going on. When he was called... He obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That's a huge statement, isn't it? Pastor Brett talked about that on Sunday, about the idea that, and I think probably last Wednesday as well, this idea of faith means stepping out even before you know where where you're headed. Stepping out in obedience. That tie to obedience is a, um, is a big deal. Oswald Chambers says, the only thing that will bring dishonor to Christ is not obeying him. To put my view of his honor in place of what he is plainly impelling me to do is never right. And he raises the question, are you loyal to Jesus Or are you loyal to your notion of him? That's a pretty big big question, isn't it? Are you loyal to Jesus or are you loyal to your idea of who he is? What if Jesus tells you explicitly and how how does he do so? He does so most often by the scripture itself. It's curious to me that Oswald Chambers is, is a guy that, that um, has been recently rediscovered as a, as a, a man of, of, of great 
understanding of what it means to walk with God. And he says this clearly. The only thing that will, dishonor, will bring dishonor to Christ is not obeying him. Obedience itself is an act of faith. Obedience itself is faith in, in motion. And why do we obey? We obey because we love him. We also obey because he's God. He's just, just, does that belong in this, in this sentence? I don't think so. We obey because he's God. We don't obey because we know the, the outcome. Um, I think it's, it's, a lot of us want to say, God, if you'll just show me where, where I need to go, I'll be glad to obey you. If, I, if you just lay it out, I'll be, I'll be glad to follow your plan. Just lay it out. And his response is, well, here's the first step. Well, that's not what I'm asking for, God. Here's the first step. But God, I, I need to know at least... It, once I put this foot in motion, I need to know where the next one's going to land because I'm going to stumble and fall if I don't, right? Here's the first step. That's all he gives. That's all he gave to Abraham. And what do we know about Abraham's faith? God counted it to him as what? As righteousness. By faith, he, that is Abraham, verse 9, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as, a foreign, as in a foreign land. The land of promise, we know, was that which God promised to him and his, what? The generations that would follow him, that he had yet not seen. It was the promised land. A dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Wow. What city is that? What's, what? Heaven? Heavenly Jerusalem? Okay. We, you know what? Uh, in, in, um, in Revelation, um, the Apostle John talks, or, or Jesus talks there through the Apostle John, of, of uh, the new Jerusalem. And indeed, that is that city that God has laid the foundation for. It is not a place that is going to be found made with human hands. And even Abraham was looking for that. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Genesis 18, what do you remember about that story? How did, how did Sarah receive that news? She laughed. She laughed. And was it because she was just full of joy? 
No, she laughed as a skeptic, didn't she? Yet even here, even here, we see her held up as a hero of faith. What's that tell you about, what's that tell you about the relationship between doubt and faith? Is there a relationship there? Are they mutually exclusive? I would hold up to you this thought. If you know, if you know where you're going, if you know the outcome, is getting up and going a matter of faith? I would say that, that there is an element of doubt involved in faith. Because if I am absolutely sure, there's no faith involved. There's knowledge involved. But if I'm unsure, if I am not quite clear about the outcome, uh, all I know is God is saying, do this. That's faith. That's a head scratcher. That's a head scratcher. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to ponder that. Because the reality is that, that there is a relationship there. The, um, the Apostle James said that it says that when we ask, we should ask in faith without doubting. For he who doubts is like what? A wave tossed on a sea, right? Has no foundation. It's hard to stand on that. So he, he, he juxtaposes doubt and faith, and yet the reality is that if I know, it's not, it's not faith, it's knowledge. Now, can we deal with the fact that, that even that statement is kind of hard to grapple with? Does that shake our faith? I hope not. I hope not because God is a whole lot bigger than that. Right? He is a whole lot bigger than our doubts. And that's what, that's what faith is all about. It's faith in God, not in what we know. It's in His character. It's in who He is not in what we know of his plan. Verse 12, Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead. Who is that? Abraham, right? He's old, as good as dead. And that as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I think that's extraordinary. 
we hold up as pillars of faith in our, in our culture today those who have, have um, come through difficulty, perhaps, but on the other side of that have, have landed in the lap of great abundance. And they sing the praises of God. They are those who have uh, experienced perhaps the healing touch of God. And we hold that up as a pillar of faith because they've experienced the healing touch of God. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I find it curious here that the writer of Hebrews is not there at all with his understanding of faith. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. Wow. Going on, verse 14. For those who say such, thing make it such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This speaks of, obviously, a heavenly understanding of life in general. That what God is about is, uh, what faith is all about, is understanding that our, our primary, our, our goal as believers is not to live in blessing, but to live in God. Do you hear the difference? God does not tell you, again, this is Oswald Chambers. God does not tell you what he is going to do. He reveals to you who he is. Faith is not, a, not in what Jesus says, but in Jesus himself. That's a pretty deep truth. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is, is, is saying here. Faith is about seeking God, not simply His provision. They were seeking a country that is not their own, a city that is a heavenly one whose, whose builder is God, not some kind of destination here on earth. That's what defined the, the, the faith of these heroes of faith. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. This is Genesis chapter 22. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. That's before God said, go offer Isaac on the altar. He, that is Abraham, considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back 
as a type. That's the, again, that picture of the salvation work of God through Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 27 through 29, illustrated here by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Genesis 49, 48 and 49, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of, his son, each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Genesis 50, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Wow. Again, that picture of things that they do not see, but knowing the promise of, of God for what it is because it's delivered by God himself. Exodus 2, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden from three, for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, Genesis, again, Genesis 2, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy passing pleasures of sin. Considering the, repro the, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. I think it would probably be best to, to uh, because we associate the word Christ there with um, Jesus Christ himself, which we should. But recognizing here that, that the thought here is that Moses, considering the reproach of the Messiah, to be greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. The reproach of the Messiah to be great, the reproach of the Messiah to be of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That's a, that, that is an upside down way of thinking about it, isn't it? The reproach of the Messiah. That's on the bottom end of the scale. And yet that's of greater value in the, in the mind's eye of Moses and his faith in God than even the riches of Egypt. By faith, Exodus 12, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. Exodus 14, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through on dry ground. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, Jer uh, Joshua chapter 6, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish among, along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies. Even Rahab, the one who did not belong to the promise, understood God for who he is. And her faith is counted here among those we call heroes of the faith. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets. What do you notice about some of those characters? Some of them were not so 
uh, much heroes of the faith, right? And yet their faith was in indeed God himself. And in their moments of lack of hope, in their moments of hopelessness or stupidity even, or, or greed... their faith remained the same, even though they experienced, some of them, the consequence of their sin. Their faith remained that God is God, period. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Wow. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. How many of you know what the, what the history of the church is like toward the end of the first and second, or first century, through even, even uh, the middle of the, the uh, 15th and 16th and 17th centuries. Persecution. How many of you know that even today there are believers throughout the world, ones that we are most aware of, Syria, China, Afghanistan, Iraq, believers going through these very things. Going through these very things. And how should we pray for them? How should we pray for them? For faith, absolutely, that their faith would remain strong. Certainly, I don't think any of us would want suffer. Any, we would not wish suffering on anyone. But the reality is, is that suffering is a part of the life of faith. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, and they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Wow. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Wow. God did not deliver the promise to them so that we could be part of that great promise. I can't even wrap my head around that. I'd like for you to take that home and, and let that soak and ask God very specifically, God, help me understand what that means. What a beautiful picture of the patience of God himself for us. Now, verse, 
chapter 12, and we'll sum it up with this. Therefore, in light of all of that expectation of faith, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, these heroes of the faith surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, everything that would weigh us down, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. That's what faith is all about, about not growing weary or losing heart. Hang in there. Hang in there. God is a rewarder of those who seek him, so the scripture says. Seek him with all your heart and allow your faith to be rooted in who he is even more than what he says. His word is alive and active, and we trust it absolutely. But his character is where that word emanates from. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the indescribable riches found here in your word. We know that they describe you. And Lord, we know that... um, Boy, it's difficult for us to even begin to fathom what it is that you have for us as believers. But we want to say clearly without questioning, God, we trust you absolutely. Period. 100%. We want to be men and women of faith. Help us endure. Help us run with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of the week. We'll see you on the weekend.